Okay. Um, the scripture this morning is from Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passive of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azostoth and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a boy of about uh, 15, I think, um, I got into boating. Now, one of the reasons I got into boating was because I liked water skiing. And if you haven't ever water skied, it's just a lot of fun. But I got into boating enough that I wanted to buy a boat. And... A friend of mine had a boat, and he was going to get another boat, so he agreed to sell it to me. I don't remember what the price of the boat was. I'm sure it was pretty cheap, but it, it didn't even have an engine. <clears throat> but I wanted the boat, so I asked my dad if I could buy the boat. And I, I really don't know why he said yes, but he said yes. So we had this 16-foot boat at the back of our property waiting for an engine. It didn't have a trailer. It was just dropped off there. And the plan was that I was supposed to get the money together to buy an engine. I mean, that was my intent. It really was. I really planned to do it. 
As a matter of fact, I even took some boating classes. It didn't last very long, but I took some boating classes. And eventually, um, I just let the boat go. It, it just sat there. I never got an engine. Um, I could have saved my money more carefully, I suppose. But as I think back on it, I think I know what happened. I got a girlfriend. And that was way more important than buying an engine. So I didn't buy an engine for my boat, but I did get a girlfriend, and now she's my wife. So that was a pretty good deal. <laughs> I say that about boats because I remember learning a little bit about boating when I got this boat, and I was planning uh, to uh, sail down the intercoastal waterway and pull my friend behind it on a, on a ski. Um, I found out early on in boating that when you're streaming down the intercoastal waterway, which is where I would have been, I wouldn't have taken it into the ocean, and you see a large boat coming your way, or even a small boat, especially a large boat like many yachts down there that are very big and expensive, as that boat comes towards you, of course, the lanes are about the same as they are on a highway. You go to the right, the other boat goes to your left. But when you see that boat coming and he gets to you, behind him is going to be a significant wake, which is basically a wave. It creates a V. And when you see that wake, instead of avoiding it, you actually turn into it. Because if you don't turn into the wake, and that will make you hop a bit, the wake's going to hit the side of the boat, and it's possible that you could capsize. It almost seemed a little counterintuitive to go into the wake. I wanted to avoid it, but I learned not to. And also, as a part of the boating class, there was um, this legend of a young sailor who, when learning how to sail a fishing vessel in the open seas, um, was on a particular day sailing the vessel, and he encountered some gale force winds. For those of you who may know about what the Atlantic waters are like, I grew up alongside the Atlantic Ocean. Those winds can kick up at a heartbeat and a storm could be out there and it could capsize a boat. And the young sailor, when those winds whipped up, he was terrified because it was his first attempt to go through a storm. And an old sailor just came up behind him and said these words, Son, Turner into the storm. Turner into the wind. Her, namely the boat. He said, always Turner into the wind. You can't outrun the storm. You can't get around the storm. You point the bow of the boat into the storm. Is there anything more descriptive of that when we think about what we've witnessed in the life of the disciples? They've been in jail at least twice by the time we get to chapter 8 of the book of Acts. And they've been told repeatedly, do not preach in the name of Jesus. And what do they do? They turn the bow of their ship straight into the storm. They face the wind. They face the sea. They refuse to turn back. On the last time that we see Peter and John in jail, we realize they turn their bow into the wind. 
But then after the martyrdom of Stephen, things get really ugly. Persecution breaks out, and it breaks out all over Jerusalem and Judea. And the Christians, which are multiplying fast, they're scattered by persecution. But it's not as though they ran away from the storm. Their scattering turned into something else. It again turned into them facing the wind. Because wherever they went, they continued to do what the disciples had already done, which was proclaim the name of Jesus. As a matter of fact, our text says that after the stoning of Stephen, persecution scattered the disciples or scattered the people of God. And the word scattered there is the exact same word that is used when Jesus talks about sowing seed, scattering seed. Some falls here, some falls there, like the farmer does. It's as though a divine hand is taking the church and scattering it like seed because of persecution. They turn into the wind and they follow the advice of Jesus. Because you remember one of the last things Jesus said while he was on this earth is that I want you to be witnesses. I want you to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and into Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. Just to get a, a little idea about what we're talking about, I want to show you a map. Um, you see, on this map, you see Jerusalem right there at the top of the Dead Sea. See that? And just below it is Judea, which is just the area, not the city. And a good bit to the north is Samaria. So as soon as Stephen dies as a martyr, another man who is one of the seven leaves Jerusalem and journeys all the way to Samaria. And begins to proclaim the gospel. And you know what happens when he goes north and begins to proclaim the gospel up there? It explodes. People start listening and hearing and accepting the words concerning Jesus. And the miracles are abundant. Everywhere Philip goes. As a matter of fact, the book of Acts says wherever he went, people were healed. And people who came with demons, they were delivered. He just faced the wind and continued to do what he knew he was called to do. You know, there's something else that's a little bit ironic about this. Philip is the first person on record to go to Samaria since Jesus. It was Jesus who gave the command to the apostles. I want you to Spread the word here and in all Judea and Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth. And who's the first person that went? Not the apostles. Philip. A lay person who's called upon to serve tables. Jim Goodson and Dan Waugh are going to be doing a parallel Sunday school class this summer on, on the book of Acts. And you may have heard in the announcements one of the things they'll emphasize is the Holy Spirit in the life of the laity. That's the Holy Spirit in the life of the laity. The apostles are told to spread the good news, and it's as though Philip overhears it and says, I can do that. And he goes. Not an apostle, but a layman. 
Everywhere he went, miracles multiplied. And right in the middle of the success of his ministry, right in the middle of it all, you might think God would say, that's an outpost, Samaria. Let's continue to build it. Philip, you just stay there and we'll grow it and we'll grow it and the church will get bigger and bigger. No, right in the middle of all the success, Philip gets a word from the Spirit and it says, now it's time to head south. Philip, I don't know about you, but if things are going really well, I'm not inclined to leave. And if I were Philip, I would want to say, Lord, don't you think I ought to stay a little longer? Can't you see all these miracles? Can't... Philip apparently didn't argue at all. He just headed south. Now, this map also shows you where he headed. The Spirit told him, I want you to head south along the road by Gaza. Gaza's way down here at the bottom of the map with those little rivers. And it's a desert area. Philip, I want you to head to the desert. I've got something for you to do down there. Philip has no idea what the plan is. I don't think he had a plan when he went to Samaria, except just to share with people. He has no idea what the plan is. To the desert he goes. And along the way, as he travels, he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch who's in the service of the queen, who actually, according to the records that we know behind the Bible, in service of the queen means in service of the king because the queen mother, apparently, did all the business of the king of Ethiopia. He was the treasurer for the nation, for the queen, and he was doing business in Jerusalem, but he was also in Jerusalem to worship. This man from Ethiopia had heard about Jerusalem and may have been some form of a devout believer in God. A God-fearer, as sometimes it's referred to in the book of Acts. And while in business at Jerusalem, he also is there to worship. And he's on his way back to his country. And on the way back to the country, apparently he had picked up a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Imagine this, he's in his chariot. And he's got the scroll unrolled. And he's reading it out loud. Philip's walking along the road. All of a sudden, a chariot approaches, and he hears the hoofbeats, but then he hears a man reading. And the man is reading a familiar passage. Philip knows it well. It comes from Isaiah 53. Oh, I want to show you another slide. He's on his way to where? Ethiopia. See where we just were? <laughs> Way up there in Jerusalem. And north of that, Samaria. And now Philip encounters a high-ranking official for the entire nation of Ethiopia to the bottom. And he shares the good news with him. And the gospel goes to Ethiopia. As Philip's walking along, the Ethiopian eunuch reading out loud Philip says, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand it? I can imagine the Ethiopian eunuch sticking his head out of his chariot and saying, no. 
How do you think I know when there's nobody here to explain it? Philip, in effect, said, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> I really didn't know why I was walking along this dusty road, but now I get it. I'm here for that. I'll explain it. He hops up into the chariot with this high-ranking official from Ethiopia. And he begins to explain Isaiah 53. Now, you remember Isaiah 53, right? That wonderful passage that we now know of as a prophecy concerning Jesus. Let, let me read a bit of it for us. Isaiah the prophet says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a tender shoot and a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one whom men hid their faces from. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows Yet we considered him stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted by him. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And the reading goes on. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch was reading. He knew the prophet Isaiah. He'd known some of it by following the Jewish faith in Jerusalem. And he said to Philip, this is fascinating. Who's he talking about? The prophet's talking about somebody. Is he talking about himself or somebody else? And Philip said, oh, I'm so glad you asked. Matter of fact, I know him. You see, I know the words that were attributed to a suffering Savior. And I know the Savior that suffered. I, along with others, watched him die. I watched him be assigned a grave with the wicked, with everyone else. And I watched that suffering servant who took all the sins, not just of Israel, get this, but of the whole world. See, that's the message that's developing in the book of Acts. And for the first time, the first time in history, 
The suffering Savior is being identified as Jesus Christ. For hundreds of years, those who followed the prophet Isaiah looked for the suffering Savior, but they never associated it with the Messiah of God. And now the disciples are saying, the Messiah of God is present in the suffering Savior. And that suffering Savior came to take not only the weight of sin for Israel, but the weight of sin for the world. Oh yeah, I know who he's talking about. I met him. Would you like to? Of course, none of that is here, right? (laughs) I'm just giving you in a sermon what I think Philip must have said. Because before it was all over, the Ethiopian eunuch has said, I believe. Now I know I believe. I want to be baptized right now. Here's some water, Philip. Can we do it? Philip obliges him and he baptizes him. And after he baptizes him, it says the Spirit took Philip away. Now, it doesn't say specifically that he took flight and he landed north, but that might be the implication. It might have been that the Ethiopian eunuch is getting baptized and they walk out of the water and poof, he's gone. And God takes him. Or it could mean that the Spirit just led him away. No matter what happened is this. He goes back to the area where he was, where he first started. And before it's all over, he begins to proclaim the word all through Caesarea. And he has two daughters that are also prophets who continue to proclaim the word in Caesarea and the Palestinian region. He continues on and he continues to proclaim. I want to... say something uh, in conclusion about us and our world. Or to put it another way, in light of what we've just heard, these stories concerning the apostles and those lay people's calling, what is our contemporary calling in this present world? We're 2,000 years from the event, and here we sit, now what? Here's our contemporary calling. We're called to face the wind. Corporately as a church and individually as Christ followers. When times get tough and life does that to us, we face the wind. We face the wind believing that a sovereign God will take care of us as we advance his purposes You know, some of you think to yourself, I'm not a very good evangelist. I I don't talk very well. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Some people dispute whether or not it's a gift at all. But I know some of you think it's a gift. Here's what I want to tell you. Yes, you are an evangelist. Maybe it's not your gift. Maybe you can't speak and talk, but your life is an evangelist. Your life is evangelism. When you turn into the wind, 
When you face adversity, even if it has nothing to do with persecution, when you face it in an absolute confidence that God will provide, you speak concerning the gospel. People see it. You face the wind differently because Jesus is in the gale with you. And that's a witness, my friends. Now, of course, there's times you're going to face the gale wind and it's going to be the force of persecution. And many of our brothers and sisters understand that all too well around the world, they turn into the wind and they face those gale force winds. And their light shines brightly. That's why early on in the history of the church, one of the church fathers looking at this situation said, my, my. The blood of the martyrs is like the seed of the church. When they turn into the gale force winds, and even when they lose their life, and even when they're scattered, the gospel prevails. We're called to lean into that wind. When it's just basic trouble in life, or when it's when it's countercultural. I don't need to give you a litany of things in our culture that are okay, do I? That we in the church say is not the proper way to live. I don't think it's our role to stand up and scream and spit and yell at the world. I think our role is to live in the world differently. Not by the same rules. Counterculturally. And sometimes that's going to cause an enormous amount of pain. But that's turning into the wind. So in our contemporary world, as the church of Jesus Christ, we must continue to turn into the wind. Second, as the contemporary church of Jesus Christ... We're called into the world. I'm going to show you another slide. First was Jerusalem and Samaria, and then you saw Ethiopia, and now, well, there it is. The whole world. And now, <laughs> I, I can't reach all over this map. But now, if I could, should have brought a yardstick. And just... Pointed there and there and there and there and there. Everywhere I pointed, the church of Jesus Christ is present. Doing the work that Jesus called the disciples to do. Everywhere in the entire world. Jesus was not only prophetic. He helped us to understand that our calling is to be in the world. Always. My friends, whenever we as the church turn so inward that we're not reaching outward, it means, it means that we're eating ourselves alive. 
It's a form of cannibalism to turn inward all the time, even if the turning inward seems so good. The church is about sending. The church is about going. The church is about the world. So our contemporary call is to always be going into the world. And it looks so different in every generation. Every opportunity that comes along, when we see it, we seize it or we ought to. And we ought to go into the world. That going into the world means, among other things, supporting an international ministry budget at ECC. It means sending people where we can never go. But it also means going into the world right here, right now. Where are you going into the world? Where? I mean besides going to work and the grocery. Where else are you going into the world? How are you doing it? You're called to. If you're not doing it, find a place to do it. If you feel like you can't do it alone, there's a bunch of people around here who do it. That's what the church is. So we're called to turn into the wind and we're called to go into the world. Constantly, constantly go. If we don't go, we die. The third part of our calling is we're called to tell the story. And the heart of the story is where the power lies. So, here's a plea for theological purity. Did you hear the message from Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch? It was simple and it was the heart of the gospel. It was Christ died for you. And Christ died for the world. And you're not good enough on your own to ever climb the ladder to God. The world is not good enough to rescue itself. Through politics or good works or anything else, it's doomed to failure. Why? Because we are the problem. We can't be the solution when we're the problem. So the only way, the only way to find the eternal life that all of us long for is to surrender ourselves to the eternal one who died for us, who took the sins of the world on his shoulders. My friends, if we ever lose or compromise that message, as countercultural and as offensive as it might be, we die as the church. It's at the heart of the gospel. We must retain it. It's our life. and It's the hope for the world. And everywhere the church thrives, it preaches that message. And everywhere it's insignificant, it stops preaching it. Good deeds are great. But they're not the heart of the gospel. They're the extension of the gospel. Morality is great, but it's not the heart of the gospel. It's the extension of the good news. The heart of the gospel is Christ 
dying for us and giving us life. And it's a message for everybody. I, um, I count it a real honor, not every day, because some days I'm, I'm grumpy, right? I don't like my job. But on my best days, I counted it an honor to be a pastor in the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Not because I just like doing good stuff. See, on my, on my worst days, I really don't want to do good stuff. I just want to make money or something like that. And I want to focus on myself. Those are, those are my bad days. So I, I'm not proud and honored to be a part of the church so I can do good stuff. Because I might not want to do good stuff sometimes. And also there's other ways to do good stuff. There's all kinds of wonderful organizations in this town and around the world that do good things. That's not what gives me joy and honor to be a pastor in the church of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what fires my soul about the church of Jesus Christ. It's this. It is the only human institution that is also eternal. Governments come and go. Organizations of all kinds come and go. Money comes and goes. Power comes and goes. Fame comes and goes. But the church of Jesus Christ cannot be eliminated. It is absolutely invincible in this world. And that's only part of the story. The reason it's invincible in this world is because it is an eternal reality present in this world. It is the body of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. It cannot be extinguished. And it will go on throughout eternity. You want to see a beautiful picture of the church? Just flip to the last book of the Bible in Revelation. And you see the saints rejoicing around the throne. Why? Because that's the church. That's where we're going. And right now we have an opportunity in this present world to participate in the eternal reality of the body of Christ. Now if that doesn't excite you, you're brain dead. <laughs> I mean really, is there anything better? I don't think so. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you've counted us worthy. <laughs> wow, that's kind of funny. Worthy to be called your church, the body of Christ. Of course we're not worthy, and the only way that we step through the door to be a part of this unbelievable, eternal reality called the church of Jesus Christ is when we realize that we're not worthy. And when we acknowledge that we are not worthy, then ironically, Lord, you make us worthy. So we thank you that you have showed us who we are. People who are not worthy of your grace, but people who are offered your grace. And people who have accepted your grace. And for that reason, 
We've been given the commission to share the redeeming grace and the transforming truth of Jesus Christ in this place and beyond. What an honor it is, Lord. We know that we stand in the way of the message sometimes. But on occasion, we get a reminder like we did today about what's so important. We pray you'll help us to embrace it again, to seize the opportunity to be the church and to glorify your name. In the name of our Lord, we pray. Amen.